Okay, we are in our Pioneer series, and we're in our Pioneer series uh, because frontiersmen, or women, notoriously were loners. Have you ever seen the uh, movie uh, Jeremiah Johnson? I don't know if I brought that up. It's a funny old school movie with Robert Redford when he was young and handsome and the heartthrob of America, I think. But uh, anyway, um, he was a frontiersman, so he traveled alone. The reason we're calling this the Pioneer Series is because pioneers travel in a team. And when they get into crisis, they circle the wagons. That's right. So one of the misnomers, thank you so much, Pedro. I've already been talking, obviously, a lot this morning. One of the misnomers of the New Testament church is that we have this superstar Paul who did it all. And we talked about Paul's physical appearance two weeks ago, so you already know that he was not a superstar. If you didn't hear that, you can go back and listen to it. Um, But we tend to think that the Apostle Paul uh, sort of did it all. And the whole point of this series is to say, oh, no, 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 no. It was a team of people that launched out and pioneered the New Testament church. And it was a pioneering venture because they're literally taking uh, Jews and Gentiles and building these um, mixed racial communities of believers. There was so much animosity between these two groups, and it took lots and lots of leadership. So we started with Paul, then we talked about, uh, I guess, Barnabas last week. This week I'm on Timothy. Next week we're doing Priscilla, Aquila. We'll probably mention some Phoebe and maybe even some Junius in that message. Those are women who led the New Testament church, if you're not aware of that. So that'll be a wonderful sermon. I actually asked Ruth uh, to be a part of delivering that. So that's, that'll be next week. Okay, I am in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We might have that behind me. Look at that, we do. I'm going to get out of the way. And I'm going to ask you to stand today for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promises of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers recalling your tears, as I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives also in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. There you go. For the Spirit of God gave us, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Lord Jesus, open your word to us today. Change us, Lord Jesus. Transform us into the likeness and image of you. Remind us that each of us who are in Christ have been crucified with you, and we no longer live. But you, King Jesus, now live in us and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to pull three things from the life of Timothy and, the, and Paul as he is um, sort of talking about Timothy. But one of my favorite things is this tender relationship that exists between them. There's this tender, tender relationship. And if you, if you put that passage back up for me, Rick, I actually love this top. And I'm uh, right here. Where, where is it? To Timothy. Say that with me, starting in verse 2. To Oh. Timothy. This is actually the last letter in 2 Timothy that Paul would have written before he was killed. The very last letter. And of all the people he could have written, he chose to write Timothy 
his dear son. And you can just see in there the, the, sort of the recalling with tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother. I mean, he loves Timothy. I was thinking this week, and it was uh, interesting that I was having my dad get up. I've not said a lot about him in, in my sermons thus far, but one of my favorite memories with my own dad is it was 1999. I just graduated from high school, and we went out uh, to Alaska for almost a month. And while we were there, uh, we spent this day salmon fishing on a boat, and we actually spent three or four days, but we caught 35,000 pounds of salmon. We were part of a salmon fishing operation. I was standing literally waist deep on the deck of the boat. They filled up the holds of this boat and they deck loaded it. I'd never seen so many fish. Big pink salmon like this. But my favorite part of the day was not that we caught all those fish. My favorite part of the day is that we were, we were camping and we were backpacking and climbed a glacier and did all this fly fishing. But on that particular day, at the end of the day, when they were unloading the fish, we grabbed two of these big salmon and we went to this hill that overlooked uh, the harbor in Valdez. And it's this beautiful um, harbor, big, big mountains that go up a full mile and they go straight down into the ocean and the water is like uh, turquoise, like glacier milk blue. And we sat on this uh, little bench and we had our backpacking stove and we cooked these uh, fish. And we ate salmon, that's all we ate. And then my mind continued to drift and I actually remember one of my favorite memories with my son, our oldest, uh, oldest son, Stephen, and it was when he was 10, and Stephen and I uh, had a similar experience. We went for a weekend, so this was three or four years ago. He's 13 now, but we went camping to a place called Stone Mountain, and it was in the middle of November, and it was like 25, 26 degrees at night, very, very cold, and we were huddled around the fire, and on the, the day we were there, we did a nine-mile hike. And as we hiked, uh, Stone Mountain is this big, beautiful, open stone hill. And as you're climbing across it, it's just these expanses open up. It's almost like the Rocky Mountains. It's not like the Appalachian Mountains. And I remember little Stephen just lighting up every time we came across one of these big, open vistas. Oh, my goodness, Dad. This is amazing. And what I love about this passage that we just read is that you begin to see this relationship between Timothy and Paul that is so intimate. It actually goes beyond just ministry. It is a, a father-son um, relationship. And Timothy is a very um, unusual person because he was half Greek, half Gentile. So let me put that into context for you. Um, I, I racked my brain. How can I even give you a reference for this? Uh, we met a guy named Max um, when we were out in California a few months ago. And Max um, is a, uh, lives in the United Kingdom, but he is a black South African man that was raised by a white South African family. Now let me explain to you what that means. Um, Max, uh, black South African, and that's apartheid if you, you know, let me jog your memory, Nelson Mandela, that whole thing. So he's raised at the end of, of all of that. He's a black man adopted and raised by a white South African family. So Max doesn't fit in with the black people because he's being raised by white people. Max doesn't fit in with the white people because he's black. And I literally sat, I mean, I took this moment in California and I was sitting, we had, a, we had like an hour and I was able to just sit and talk to Max and I was so overwhelmed because he didn't fit anywhere. 
And his whole relationship with the Lord had been forged and built because he didn't fit anywhere. Timothy would have been just like that. Half Greek, half Jewish. Do the Jewish people like him? Do the Greek people like him? But what's brilliant about Timothy is because he was both Greek and Jew, he was Paul's perfect protege. Because he could actually understand from his lineage and legacy and from his raising that the, the Jewish perspective, and he could also understand from his dad the Greek perspective. And the big challenge in the New Testament churches was they're literally, Paul is literally melding Greek people with Jewish people, and you have this biracial sort of thing happening and all this tension, and people hate each other, and Paul keeps trying to get them all into church together. Not terribly different from where we're sitting right now in Wilmington, North Carolina. From an early age, Timothy actually put his faith in the Lord Jesus. He probably came to faith at, during Paul's first missionary journey. Acts 14.6, if you want to look that up. But he won the admiration of Christians in his hometown of Lystra and the larger city of Iconium. And he really becomes one of Paul's troubleshooters. So there was some trouble that arose in Ephesus at one point. And he actually sent Timothy to be a part of that. But I think Paul was impressed by the character qualities in Timothy. And he was convinced that it was worth his time and his effort to mentor him. It wouldn't surprise me if you look at some of Paul's travels. He traveled with Barnabas and John Mark. It actually wouldn't surprise me if one of the things Paul wasn't doing was trying to add a third person to his trio with Silas. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They traveled together, they worked together, they preached the gospel together, they made tents alongside one another. This was this father-son relationship that began to be forged. And as Timothy began to be sort of rooted and founded in the faith, strong enough, Paul began to send him out. Even when Paul was in prison, he would say, Timothy, go, go to Ephesus and get the church there sorted out because they're a mess. And Timothy would go. So I want to pull out three points this morning that I think reflect Paul, I think they reflect Timothy, but I think they'll also have some bearing on where God has called us as people to live today. So my first point is Paul calls Timothy to live relationally, to live relationally. One of the risks of the American church is that we drift from a relationship with Christ Jesus into sort of a set of external rules that we just follow and we do things. And because we do things, we think we're Christian. I sat with someone who was telling a, a, a story, and, and they literally went, um, well, you know, I'm Christian because I'm nice to my neighbors, and I take my cart back, and I'm respectful to people. It's like, Really? But that was their frame of reference. And the risk in the American church is that we actually drift into that. So there's this call that Paul is sort of issuing to Timothy, and there's this relationship between the two of them that is forged, this tender father-son relationship. And I think the other risk as we look at the American church is that we began to think that the uh, Spirit of God flows through methods or structures, or hierarchies, or 
systems or even programs. But what we begin to see here in the life of Timothy with Paul is that the Spirit of God flows through people. So there's this call to live relationally. So when there's a problem in one of the churches, Paul not only writes a letter, but he'll send someone like Timothy. Go to the church. Timothy's name actually means honoring God or precious to God. And I think in Timothy's life that proves to be true. He both honored God and he was precious to God. There's something in Timothy that reminds me of 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he might lift you up. I love that about Timothy because Timothy is literally inviting older, wiser people around him to help shape the path. Some of you might even go, Michael, why would you have older, wiser elders around you? I know a lot of young church pastors, and they're like the oldest one in the room. I'm like, not for me. So the first point that we see in Paul's even message here to Timothy is to live relationally. The second thing that we see here, Paul calls him to lead relationally. And I want to sort of paint a picture here because I think this is really important because you can see it in American businesses, you can see it in churches, you can see it in uh, parachurch Christian organizations, but, but people, for some reason, we as leaders fail to lead relationally. I want you to like track here with me just a minute. Um, in organizations or in churches, when somebody makes a mistake, oftentimes, instead of going to that person and sitting down and having a cup of coffee or talking with them or sorting it out, we make a rule or a policy. You hear me? If you've been in a school, if you've been in a church, if you've been in a business, you've seen this in play, I'm sure. Instead of actually sitting and saying, hey, what happened? Eric, help me understand. Where were we? What were you seeing? What? And, and actually sitting and dialoguing, we make a rule. We make a policy. There's actually a book I love, and it's called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And the whole concept is the hairball is all these rules and policies that we've made. It's like, blah, 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 blah. But what you see in the life of Paul is that he is not making rules and policies. He is handling things relationally. So you have the Pharisees, remember, that made all these additional rules and all these additional policies. And then you have Paul, who is fiercely relational. And he's calling Timothy to also be fiercely relational. I actually looked up some laws in North Carolina. So I want to shift the metaphor just for a second. But there's a, there's a law in North Carolina that you can't use elephants to plow cotton fields. Jay says it's not his fault. <laughs> Judge Jay Corpening over here. Okay, so I'm just illustrating my point here. But how is it that whoever were the lawmakers of the day didn't go sit with so-and-so and go, hey, it's probably not good for you to use your elephant to plow the cotton field, and instead we use a bunch of time and energy and whatever litigation and, and legislation, and we pass a law, you can't use an elephant in a cotton field. We do the same thing in church. We do the same thing in schools. We do the same thing in business. There's another law in North Carolina that you can't rollerblade down the interstate. <laughs> how much time did that legislation take to get through? I'm like, how much time and energy did we actually spend to make that happen? 
But you know what? I have sat in church after church after church that somebody makes a stupid mistake. And you know what? We're all people, and guess what? We make them, don't we? I've made them. I've made them. Tons of them. Gosh. But people make a stupid mistake, like rollerblading down the interstate, and instead of just handling this as a one-off and dealing with this one thing, we make this big rule, we make this big policy, we make this thing. And so what happens is our organization or our church or whatever you're in begin, gets thicker and thicker and thicker with rules and guidelines and policies. And then you have people who keep the rules, and if somebody gets out of line, they go, no, you broke the rules. But see, what I love about Paul is Paul actually goes and he sits with people and he entreats them and he talks to them. And he's actually saying here to Timothy, Timothy, my son in the faith, whom I loved, I long to see you. He was so fiercely relational. There's another law here in North Carolina that you can get a DWI on a horse. <laughs> what? All right, point taken. <clears throat> Paul pioneered relational ministry teams. Paul pioneered relational ministry. Real people valuing authenticity over perfectionism. Real people being where they are, being authentic. And I'm actually convinced that by and large, the population of people would rather follow leaders across the board who are real, not leaders who are perfect. I'm actually reminded of the your vision statement, I'm pointing to my dad, Steve Mattis, his vision statement at the vineyard was real people following the real Jesus, living in the real world, I think. But authenticity is so valuable. That's why you'll get us up here from time to time being authentic about our own failures or our own weaknesses, because guess what? I'm human too. Paul's human also. Timothy's human also. So Paul says we must lead relationally, and he's trained Timothy to lead relationally. The next thing that I love about Paul here, and it's my third point, is that he legacies relationship. He legacies relationally. That's probably not good English, but I had to put it in there. Live relationally, lead relationally, and legacy relationally. But in both places uh, here, and it's also in Philippians, right before Paul speaks to Timothy, he references being poured out like a drink offering. That's an Old Testament analogy. He's literally being poured out. But he's saying, I have come to the end of my race. I'm about to die. And he's actually calling Timothy uh, to take on and to follow in his stead and to pastor the various churches but when I read this little passage, I really see that, that Paul, in his sort of legacy, treats his apostleship as an honor, he treats his apostleship as a responsibility, and he treats his apostleship as a privilege. And he calls Timothy to do the same things. The reason I wanted our elders to come up this morning and to commission them is the same thing that we see happening here with Paul and Timothy. Because he's literally saying, Timothy, stand on my shoulders, reach beyond, go further, carry the gospel. My time is almost over. I'm heartbroken that I don't get to see you and be with you and talk to you. But carry the gospel of Christ Jesus. You know, I, um, I wear a wedding band, no surprise. But what's different about this wedding band, it's a very simple wedding band. It's very thin. It's tiny. My friends all have cooler wedding bands than I do. Really. 
But inside my wedding band is engraved two sets of initials in the year 1947. And that is the wedding band my grandfather wore in their 50-some-odd years of marriage. And what I want to do more than anything, like Timothy here is doing with Paul, is stand on the shoulders of the ones who have gone before and reach farther. Paul is literally saying, my son Timothy, I'm coming to the end. I'm getting ready to be poured out like a drink offering. Here's my ceiling. I want it to be your floor, and I want you to reach beyond. I want you to stand and go farther. And the reason even why we have the elders we have here at this church is because they're people. There's like 160 years of ministry experience between them. My contribution's like nothing. But do you hear me? I got like 15 years in the 160 years. But here's the point. The point is that you have Paul at the end of his journey and you have Timothy and he's saying, go further, go beyond. I'm getting ready to come to the end. I'm getting ready to be poured out. Legacy relationally. I read a, in fact, Perry, if you'll come on up here. I read a blog um, that a lady wrote. And in this blog, there was a mom in an airport, LAX, and she was getting ready to get on the airplane. And she had a toddler who was about two. And the toddler starts pitching a fit. And if you've never had uh, kids, you might go, well, you know, point the finger at the parents and whatever. But I assure you, if you have kids or grandkids, you hit a point where you're like, oh, my gosh, I'll do anything for you to be quiet. And, and me as a young parent, you say things like, oh, I'll never bribe my kids. But in that moment, when they're going bonkers in a public place, you're like, I don't, don't do anything. Just stop. But this mom is literally in the airport. She's at the gate. And toddler is pitching an all-out fit, yelling, screaming, kicking. And mom tries and tries and tries to get this little one to settle down. And it only makes it worse. And at some point, toddler throws himself on the floor, and he's kicking and screaming and yelling. And mom steps over and just crumples to the floor, and she just starts sobbing. And what happened next is six different women from all over the airport saw this happening, and they stand up. And they come around in a little circle around this mom and around this toddler. And one of the women takes out a clementine orange and starts peeling an orange. And one of the women starts playing peekaboo with the toddler. And one of the women starts encouraging the lady who's laying on the floor. And it's like they built this little wall around this lady in the airport who's embarrassed, who's sobbing, who's mortified. And it wasn't but a few minutes that the little toddler started interacting with a couple of the ladies. The mom's wiping her tears away. They're helping the lady and the little person up and getting over to the entrance to the airport line or the plane line. And then in a matter of a few minutes, without a word spoken between them, the six ladies disperse back out to their various spots. Don't even say a word. That's the church. That's the church. 
And what you have happening here with Paul and Timothy is you get just a glimpse. What's hard about an epistle is it's in a letter. That's just a fancy church word for saying letter. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy. And you only get to see one side of the discourse. You don't get to see the other side. So we're just looking at Paul's words. But in this letter, Paul's literally wrapping around Timothy like those women wrapped around that lady and that toddler. He's encouraging Timothy. He's saying, come on, keep going, keep pressing, get up. He's calling him to see farther, to care more deeply, to sacrifice more fully. Remember Paul, the bald, 4'6", short, hunchback, bow-legged, remember him? In prison, writing this letter to his dear son in the faith. Church, if you get anything out of this day, God's called us to live relationally, he's called us to lead relationally, and he's called us to legacy relationally. You might sit out there and go, Michael, I don't have anybody that's close in to my life, and I would say you need to change that. We've got some small groups coming, you can get in one. You might go, Michael, there's not really anybody in my life that I have who's coaching me. You can fix that. We've got some older people around who've got more experience. You might go, Michael, I don't have any young people that I'm actually pouring into. You can fix that too. You've got to cross the room and say, hey, y'all want to go to lunch today? Or hey, we're having dinner at our house. Would you come? Looking at Carol over here nodding at me. Carol and Pedro have done more than anybody in the church that I know to reach out to people and say, hey, come to our house. They've had more people at their house, more people on their boat. Every time I talk to somebody, I feel like they've reached out to somebody else. And I'm just saying, that's what this journey is about. Don't do it alone. It's relationship with Christ Jesus. And the risk in this whole American evangelical scene that we're caught in in this moment is that we lose the value of relationship with God and relationship with people. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's pretty relational. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's relational. We serve a relational God. The reason I call us to be in a one-year Bible and get a five-year journal and find time during the day to interact with him in it is because he wants to whisper to you, speak to you. His sheep know his voice. Let's pray. Lord, there's some of us in the room that feel like that lady in the airport tears in our eyes given up if we feel like a failure. And Lord, there might be some of us in this room who are like that toddler who just wants his own way. And Lord, there might be some of us in the room this morning that don't know you as this relational God. I told stories about my own father and then my own son. There might be people in the room who have just lost dads. I know there are several people who don't have a father, people who were abandoned by a father or even abused by a father. There might even be new fathers in the room who would go, gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help.
as our eyes are closed, if any of those spots fit you, I'm just going to ask you to stand up. Eyes are closed. This isn't about anybody else. This is about you and the Lord. If you don't know him as a relational God, there's no magic prayer or words. It's just, Lord, you speak to him whatever words you have. to do some work in our hearts today on this issue of relationship with him and other people, maybe even in the area of fathers. But you guys have to press in. <laughs> you got to press in. you got to say, Lord, here am I. So if you're at a crisis at any point in your life, if you're at a point of difficulty, I'm going to invite you again to stand up. Eyes are closed. It's okay. Father, we need you. Father, we need to know you as God, as Father, as Lord. Holy Spirit, across this room, would you minister to hearts and minds? Lord, some of us have been hurt by churches that don't emphasize relationships. Stand and worship the Lord with prayer.